We're reading from Galatians this evening, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Paul accepted by the apostles. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I wasn't running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers who had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand to fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of God. Thanks, Kristen. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. Let's uh, pray as we look at God's word, but do keep um, a finger in the, in the Bible so that you can look at the passage. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we thank you that your gospel is freedom. Uh, Father, we pray that tonight you would open our eyes that we might see and believe that the Lord Jesus has set us free. And we pray that you would move our hearts, that we would rejoice in the freedom we have. And we pray that you would convince our minds so that we would stand firm, that we would be able to defend this glorious truth when it's attacked in our own hearts and when it's attacked out in the world. We ask these things for the glory of your Son. And we ask them uh, knowing that we need your Spirit's help. And so we thank you for him with us now. Amen. Would Paul give in to the pressure to have Titus circumcised? That's the issue at the heart of tonight's passage. Now, in my um, years in ministry, I've had guys come to me and admit all manner of struggles and temptations, but I have never yet had a man come and say, I'm just, I'm just really, really wrestling. I'm finding it so hard not to get circumcised. Every time I see a sharp knife, I'm just, you know, I have to stay out of the kitchen, the stationery cupboard at work says, I just can't be near any. That has never happened to me. And it seems pretty irrelevant to us, unless you're, uh, unless you're considering at the moment converting to Judaism. Because circumcision is the ceremony that God gave Abraham in Genesis 17. That was the, the marker of transferring from not being Jewish to becoming Jewish. Uh, viscerally, literally, it, it pictured being cut off from the world and set apart as God's people, the Jews. But actually, the issue that is behind it goes to the very heart of the gospel, the essence of the Christian faith. Here is why. What's really going on is this question. Is trust 
in Jesus enough? Or is there something, anything that I have to do to be fully accepted into God's family? To be fully forgiven, to be able to stand before Almighty God without any fear or shame? Is trust in Jesus enough or are there things I have to do, rituals I have to go through? Now, of course, the Bible says there's loads of things that Christians should do as part of God's family. It has lots to teach about how we should relate to God, about how we should treat other people. Lots and lots to say, but this is different. This isn't about how we live as God's family. This is about how we qualify to join God's family. This is about the entry requirements, if you like. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're still looking into these things, I hope you can see how important this is. This is about what do I have to do, what do I have to be to qualify as a Christian? If you already call yourself a Christian, I imagine many of us tonight thinking, I think I'm clear on this. But look, here's the issue. This is dealt with in almost every one of the New Testament letters. It is perhaps the most common mistake the church makes, which shows that it is a mistake that is endemic to humanity. We always seem to be falling into an error on this issue. And so even if you feel secure and that you're sorted on this, it seems to be that church history and God's spirit, by the sheer number of times he says it, want to say to us, look, you really do actually need to look at this carefully again so that you are secure, so that you can help other people, so that you do not drift Because sometimes when the weight of sin is crushing us and when shame is unbearable, we'll wobble on this. And sometimes when other people have very convincing arguments the other way, we'll we'll find ourselves wondering whether we have understood it right and believed the right things. So we do need to get this clear in our heads. A debate in Jerusalem about circumcision 2,000 years ago may not seem immensely relevant to you and me, but the issue behind it really is. Now, the issue of whether Christians have become culture, had to become culturally Jewish is what he's saying. It is this, just, this symptom of the deeper, darker disease. The gospel, as we've seen already in Galatians, is this. God has done everything necessary for our salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see that throughout the New Testament, the apostles proclaimed this. And any attack on this, any question on this, is an attack on the gospel. So the great reformer Martin Luther said about the circumcision debate these words. The issue before us is grave and vital. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be utterly in vain. Then it's just a fable that Christ is the saviour of the world. Then God is a liar and has not lived up to his promises. If we lose this, we lose God we lose Christ, we lose all the promises, faith, righteousness, and even eternal life. Come with me to Galatians 2, and let's make sure we do not lose the gospel. 
two points for you. The gospel sets us free from slavery and the gospel sets us free for true unity. Verse one, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So remember, Paul is a... He's having to defend his validity, his credentials as an apostle before he can get in chapters three and four to the meat of the gospel he believes and that he proclaims. He needs to defend his authority. Is he really an apostle? And so he mentions the time here, 14 years, because he's showing, look, I didn't spend the early years of my Christian life in Jerusalem being taught by the other apostles. For three years I was instructed by Jesus, he says, in Arabia. And then, what did he do? He had a quick trip to Jerusalem. And then he spent the the next 11 years traveling around the Mediterranean, proclaiming the gospel and planting churches everywhere people believed. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It's extraordinary history. And now he's come back. Verse 2, I went in response to a revelation. Again, he stresses it's God who's directing his steps. It's not that the apostles from Jerusalem have summonsed him and Paul has to do what they say. No, God has spoken. He's an apostle. God reveals things to him. This is probably talking about Acts 11 where uh, God spoke through a prophet Agabus and told him that there was going to be a terrible famine in Jerusalem. And so the despised Christians are going to be in real trouble because no one's going to help them. And so Paul wants to come back to, uh, re- to tell them about the wonderful things that have been happening as he's proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews around the Mediterranean and to Jews. But also he wants to bring uh, famine aid from the richer Gentile churches on the trade routes to the impoverished brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. But there's another reason for the visit. Continue in verse 2. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. What does that mean? It is not that Paul's, oh my goodness, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe, oh, ah. Maybe I've, I've understood the gospel wrong. I better go back to Jerusalem and check with Peter. No, he spent the whole of chapter one saying, I didn't need to check with them. God told me. And when God's made it clear, when Jesus has said, this is the gospel, I don't need to check with Peter or any other apostle. Now his fear is that if the Jerusalem apostles, if the other apostles are preaching a different gospel to the one that Jesus has entrusted to them and to Paul, Well, then right from the start, the church is going to be split along ethnic lines. There'll be a Jewish church and there'll be a non-Jewish church. And Jesus' wonderful work of reconciling, bringing together humanity will be destroyed. And all Paul's work of planting churches that have got both Jews and Gentiles in will be probably undone. Okay, so what is this issue that causes such fear in Paul? Well, it is this issue of circumcision, verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So people who appeared to be genuine Christians had come into the church in Jerusalem and were spreading a poisonous deception which is, look, if you want to be a real, genuine Christian, if you really want to be part of the people of God, then you must trust in Jesus and get circumcised and become Jewish and keep the laws of the Old Testament. To be honest, uh, we, 
in one sense, we shouldn't be too harsh on the church in Jerusalem for being confused because the whole church was Jewish. And so it's easy to understand. You know, they, just, they haven't had any contact really with Gentile Christians. But it is an error that strikes right to the heart of the gospel because it denies that Jesus is enough. It says, if you want to be part of the people of God, there are things you have to do. There is more than just trust in Jesus. And so when Paul brings uh, this, this Greek chap from his missions team, Titus, with him, the church faces one of its greatest early tests. Will they accept that he is a full member of the people of God, a full brother in Christ, because he trusts in Jesus? Or will they only accept him once he gets circumcised, once he become, becomes Jewish as well as Christian? Now, if Paul gives in, the gospel is lost because the gospel is no longer God has done everything necessary for our salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is now God has done most of what's necessary to bring you into a relationship with God, but there's a whole heap of stuff you have to do yourself. That's a totally different message. And so this really mattered. In 1833, the Act of Emancipation was passed by which Britain uh, formally liberated the Africans who'd been wickedly enslaved by us in, in all our territories. And the book of Galatians is the act of emancipation. It is God's freedom charter, not just for slaves of one nation, but for all humanity. It says, God has set you free. Free from the fear of God's judgment, his rightful wrath against our sin. Free from the guilt and insecurity that comes with thinking my standing with God is, is really actually down to how stuff I have to do. Free from all of that guilt and shame. Free from that worry that whether God loves me and accepts me, uh, the stuff I've got to do. And the message of Galatians is God has set you free. Because Jesus has died on the cross and paid for your sin. If you trust in him, He's done everything. He's done everything. It is the freedom charter for humanity. Now, it might seem uh, rather odd to us to talk of Christianity as freedom. Our culture, if you ask most people, slavery or freedom, which box do you put Christianity into? They put it into the, well, that's the slavery box. Uh, but it's a bit like this, um, this climbing rope um, which I haven't used for a while and I wouldn't advise anybody to use now. Um, now, there is a sense in which uh, climbing with, without ropes is freedom. You are free. You're free of the rope if you climb without ropes. Uh, you're, you're free of the need to ever pay into a pension fund if you climb without ropes for long enough. But you are free. You're free. But actually, being tied to the rope securely is true freedom. Because when you're tied securely to a rope when you're climbing... You are free from the fear that one slip and you'll end up as cliff pizza. And then you can actually enjoy climbing. And that's what Galatians teaches us about Christianity. That we are not, we're not ultimately on our own. Jesus Christ has us securely tied. And when we slip and when we don't get things right, it is not fatal because he's done everything. He has tied us securely to God the Father and nothing can break that bond. And so we are free to enjoy our Christian life, obeying him, living life to the full. 
Paul stood firm to defend the truth of the gospel because it was the freedom that God has given humanity. It liberates us from human rules and rituals. It liberates us from the need to rely on performance so we can enjoy our relationship with God. The gospel sets us free from slavery. Secondly, we read that the gospel sets us free for true unity. Now, the second part of this chapter, actually, or of this passage, shows us what happens when you're clear on the gospel and what happens is you are free for a radical unity. You see... um, Pretty much every religion is tied to a particular region and culture. So the vast, vast majority of Hindus still live in India. The vast, vast majority of Buddhists are in East Asia. And the vast, vast majority of Muslims are in Arabia and North Africa. Most major religions are tied to a particular home culture. And even when they go beyond that that region, they take with them a culture ready set. There is a a way of dressing, a way of eating, a particular style of worship, even a language you have to use that marks you out as being from that particular religion. And if this meeting in Galatians 2 had gone wrong, then Christianity would forever have been tied to Judaism and would probably never have spread beyond Israel. But that's not what happened. Verse 6, as for those who are held in high esteem, he's writing about the apostles, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is non-Jewish people, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, that is Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the uncircumcised. So the apostles in Jerusalem added no cultural baggage to the message you need to trust in Jesus Christ. They did not add any of the cultural laws of Judaism, like circumcision, to the Christian message. They recognized, verse 7, that in taking the one message of Jesus Christ to different cultures the resulting churches would look very different. There would be a diversity of ministry, even with this united message of the gospel. It would mean that the outward appearances of the churches Paul planted would be very, very different from the church in Jerusalem. Because you see, the gospel has no cultural baggage. But that's one of the liberating, glorious things about the gospel. And that's what's enabled Christianity to spread truly globally everywhere. You know, I don't have to dress in a particular way because I'm a Christian. I'm free. I just choose to express that freedom by dressing like every other Christian minister, you know. It's, uh, it's just the way I roll. Uh, it's not required. There is no Christian way to dress. Now, there have been times in the past where Christians have bogged this up badly, where uh, missionaries uh, have required other cultures, indigenous people, to dress like Victorian English people or whatever. But by and large, it's been well understood. So when missionaries take the gospel message out, they don't require the people who respond in faith to Jesus to learn Greek and Hebrew. They translate the gospel message into their language and the churches into their culture. You do not have to become Jewish or English or Kenyan or Egyptian or Chinese to become a Christian. The gospel works in any and every culture. 
And so there can be a radical deep unity amongst Christians of totally different backgrounds. Verse 9, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. They shared the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they said, we are 100% with you. We completely and wholeheartedly endorse and approve of and agree with what you're doing. We're in partnership with you. And Paul, for his part, was keen to raise money for the, Gentiles, uh, for, the, for the Jewish Christians who were poor. They didn't speak the same money. Paul was going back to, um, to Gentile regions saying, there's a bunch of Christians, they speak a different language to you. They don't eat the food you eat. They don't approve of the music you like. They don't look like you. They don't even understand your language. But they also trust in Jesus. Now, would you, would you sell your car, remortgage your house to help them out because they're starving? And they said, yes. That's the unity the gospel brings. What you have here is not two different gospels, but one gospel going to two different cultures. And the true gospel liberates religion from culture. So imagine if a group of people came in here tonight um, from uh, somewhere, somewhere completely alien to us, a, a country none of us even heard of. And uh, this group of people at the end, they said, we loved hearing about the gospel. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and we'd like to start a church in Bladalistan um, that we come from, that none of you have ever heard of. It's a, new, a country that none of you have ever been to, but we'd like to, to start a church. But um, the thing is, we don't like English. It's a horrible language. Um, can we do church in our language? Yes. We didn't like your songs, to be honest. They, I just, yeah, we didn't get them at all. Um, can we write our own songs? Yes. We thought your building was ridiculous. It's cold and it's just an odd shape. Can we, can, we, can we do church in a different sort of building? Yeah, building doesn't matter at all. We didn't like your sermons. They're far too short. Um, <laughs> can we have proper sermons, two hours long? Yeah, do what you like. We believe in Jesus, that he's done everything necessary for our salvation. Can we be full Christians, although we do all those other things differently? Yes. We even want our minister to dress differently from yours. and Fine. But if somebody else comes in the next week, if another group come in and they say, we loved the music. It was amazing. And the building was so beautiful. And, and the length of sermon was just perfect for us. And we loved the way everybody dressed and the food you served afterwards. We love all those things. We, we would like to set up a church in our culture. But we do want to just, um, some bits of what you said about Jesus won't go down very well where we are. So we'll just change those things. But we're starting a church in our culture. Are we brothers? I'm afraid not. You can look like us, sound like us, dress like us, eat like us, speak like us. But our unity is in none of those things. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So if in AD 50 you were a Jewish businesswoman selling uh, environmentally friendly two-horse chariots and you were traveling around Galatia and you ended up going to a Galatian church, you would find nothing familiar to you in that church. As a cultural Jew, you probably wouldn't have even been able to eat the food they served afterwards. You may have hated the music and everything. But when you read the words of the songs and heard the words of the sermon, you would have realized that you have more in common with those people 
than you did with your own unbelieving family in Jerusalem. That's what the gospel does. It gives a radical unity. What should we do in the light of these things? The first thing we should do is defend the freedom of the gospel. Defend the freedom of the gospel. That's what Paul does here, and that's what we need to do. And there are a number of places I think we defend it. Firstly, in the battlefield of your own heart. See, our gospel freedom comes under, under attack when we mess up, which all of us do as Christians. That's why we confess our sins every week. And when we mess up, and my first instinct is to be afraid of God and to fear that he'll reject me completely or to think, I need to have, done, I need to have had a number of days when I've had my quiet time and uh, I, I need to do some things and, and before I can come back to God. At that point, I show that I have lost the freedom of the gospel. And I've started to think that there are things I need to do to make me right with God. And I need to remember what we did in our confession. The way to God is to admit my sin and trust in Jesus. Secondly, gospel freedom comes under attack when things are going really well in the Christian life. And that makes me think I must be right with God because of that. Now that's a subtle one. Because of course I enjoy my relationship with God more when I'm living his way. But when I get to think that I, am, I must be all right because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, rather than I must be all right with God because Jesus has done everything, well then I'm in danger of losing the freedom of the gospel and relying on what I do. We also need to defend it when it's undermined by others. Be prepared to speak out when other Christians deny it, question it, mock it. Beware when you hear uh, other Christians or churches say, yes, trust in Jesus, that's all you need to do to be a Christian. But you're not a real Christian unless you get baptized this way or you speak in tongues or you do things the way we do in our church. And every church always runs the risk of doing that. As soon as you like the way you do things, the danger is you think that's the way it has to be done to be a proper Christian. Beware of that. Defend it also in the way that you live out gospel unity. What do I mean by that? Uh, one application might be a go on holiday to foreign countries so that you can go to other churches. I don't think any of us probably need that much of an encouragement to go to foreign countries. Um, but when you do go on holiday, actually look up gospel-hearted churches. It's a deep joy to share with other Christians. But the most important application of that principle of unity with others is much, much closer to home. It's not about what I do when I go on holiday. We live in a fragmented world and the natural human response to others, to different, is I fear, I suspect, I hate The gospel changes that. The gospel brings radical unity between warring peoples, between hating peoples, between historically unreconciled peoples. And the sad truth is we sing about that, but very few of us live it out. And so if we're honest, we don't get excited about the unity the gospel brings. It's just another thing they talk about in church. Because we're not experiencing it in our own lives. Too many of us, let's be honest, and we, we all fall into this. The people that we seek friendship with, the people we decide to talk to in church, 
are people who we would probably get on with even if we weren't Christians, which is fine. But so often we lose the massive, wonderful, awesome privilege of of finding that God is true and that we can have an incredibly deep friendship with people who are nothing like us, but who share Jesus Christ. And if you never discover that, you're missing one of the richest treasures of the Christian faith. And actually, you're denying, in one sense, the freedom of the gospel. The gospel sets you free from having to to only hang out with and invest in and spend time with people just like you. It sets you free to know a radical unity. It sets you free to celebrate the glorious cultural diversity that God has given us as humans. I would encourage you to press into that. Look, um, ultimately, um, where are we tonight? What's going on? The false teachers... What's going on? The false teachers are teaching that Christianity is a budget airline. That's basically what's going on. Imagine you're living in Germany and Brexit is coming, so you think, ah, oh, I must visit London before, um, before you know, the border comes down hard. And so you're searching online and you find, ooh, that's a very good deal, 40 euros, which is about 75 quid, um, for a flight... <laughs> for a flight to London. So you book your ticket, 40 euros, and, and you phone your friend and say, I'm coming to visit you in London. I found a ticket for only 40 euros. He said, brilliant. Uh, a ticket to London for 40 euros. Yeah, yeah, 40 euros. Here's the ticket, London Stansted. Now, those of you who, uh, who are new to London need to know that London has a number of airports. Stansted is not in London. Stansted is in the wilds of Bedfordshire. If you get out of the airport at Stansted, you will see nothing but bleak fields and the M1. That is all you will find at Stansted. The budget airline gets you to Stansted, but then you have to get yourself to London. And it generally costs almost as much as the ticket to Stansted costs you. The false teachers who had infiltrated the churches in Jerusalem and now in Galatia that Paul is writing to were saying, effectively, Jesus only gets you as far as spiritual standstead. You have to do something else to get yourself to London, spiritually. You are not fully a part of God's family. You're not fully in the blessing of God. You don't know real forgiveness. You're not actually God's child until you have well, what they said in this particular instance is become culturally Jewish as well. But Jesus is not a budget airline. Jesus has done everything necessary to get you as close to the heart of God as it is possible to be. I mean, what human ceremony or what action that you and I could take could get us any closer to God than what Jesus has already done? That's why the gospel is the gospel of freedom. Jesus has done everything. He's taken us from far, far away and brought us right to the heart of the people of God, adopted as his child. And so we are free, free from the guilt and fear that comes from thinking the stuff I have to do if I'm really going to be a child of God. Free from the the weight of sin and shame that I think I have to deal with. Free from the cultural narrowness that crushes God's wonderful gift of human diversity. And the great thing is, 
because it's a free gift. If you arrive tonight and you've never put your trust in Jesus and you do so tonight, there is nothing more you need to do. Trust in Jesus and tonight you are as close to God as someone who's been a Christian 45 years. You'll be as close to God as any and everybody else in this room. Your sins will be completely forgiven. There is nothing you will need to do. Nothing. If that's something you want to do, I would love to chat to you afterwards. I promise you won't regret it. I said it's something you want to do. If you want to trust in what Jesus has done, do come and talk to me afterwards. Let's pray now. Our Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. And so we are free from the need to have to do anything. Father, I pray whether it's for the first time or or whether it's something that we've known for years, that you would help each of us to recommit ourselves to you tonight, uh, dropping all the, all the things we think will make us right with you and turning to trust in the Lord Jesus and to rejoice in the freedom that brings. Help us too, Father, to rejoice in the radical unity your gospel brings. Thank you that the gospel is not British or Chinese or Jewish. And we pray that we would demonstrate that in the way that we love and befriend and enjoy people who are different from us. And we ask all these things that the Lord Jesus might be mightily glorified amongst us. Amen.